What's up, family of God? Doesn't it feel good to not have 150 people standing up along the walls right now? Man, praise Jesus, all right? That is a good, good, good morning. Uh, y'all are the faithful few, the few that are in the, in the town still. How many of y'all uh, are from Austin? See, that's why y'all are still here. Is there anybody else is in Houston and Dallas right now? So uh, it is good to be worshiping with you all this morning, though. Uh, man, all, good, merry, almost Christmas, all right? We ain't having a Christmas Eve gathering, so this is our time right here. Uh, and I'm excited to begin to think about uh, really what we're gathering for in the first place uh, and the reality of why we're even meeting together. We're celebrating something that is almost unbelievable if we really ponder and think about it for a moment. Like the reality of uh, God becoming a human uh, is something that is kind of unnatural in a way, and it's unreal, and it's something that uh, doesn't uh, naturally uh, kind of interact with our day-to-day lives, and yet we sing about this, and we live in light of this reality, and so I really want to uh, have us as a body just stop and ponder for a moment. That the God of the universe, what we are proclaiming today, is that he became like you and I, a human. Like, think about the reality of this, right? Like, the ever-existing God that was not created, that has been eternal, actually came down into a time-born universe and became flesh, That this God who uh, dwells in unapproachable light actually became a little tiny baby, right, that can be wounded and, and hurt and killed, that was dependent on somebody else to keep his life sustained even though he's the sustainer of all life. Like the reality of what we're actually celebrating is kind of unreal, And I don't know if we stop and we ponder and we think about this reality enough that God loved us so much that he was faithful to send us his son and really faithful to his own promises that he would come down and be born as a man. God became us. Like this is a mystery family unlike any other And that's what we get to celebrate and reflect on this morning. So what we're going to do is something a little bit different this morning than what we're used to doing. Uh, Instead of telling you where to turn in your Bibles, I'm actually going to tell you not to open your Bibles this morning. Well... Now, before you leave the church, think I'm a heretic or something. That's not what we're doing, all right? We're actually going to spend a ton of time in the Word this morning. But uh, rather than going back and forth, left and right, we're going to be all over the Scripture. It's going to all be on the screen, all right? What I would rather have you do, unless you want to practice those Awana skills, for those of you who grew up in church, all right? Unless you're that person, I want you to actually stop and to think and to reflect and to really begin to kind of ponder the reality of the scriptures that we are about to read this morning, that Jesus became a man, that this God became human. And so I want to walk through the story of scripture, kind of anticipating and setting us up for the birth of Christ and what we're even going to sing about at the end of our gathering today. And so we're going to give the overarching uh, story of the birth of Jesus, and we're going to be all over the place in scripture. Okay, now uh, bear with me because I'm not like Adam Watson. I'm not a great storyteller, but we're going to tell the story of scripture, all right? 
I mean, last week, my mans was up on stage and got down and sat cross-legged to tell you a story. Your boy ain't never sitting cross-legged on stage or anywhere else, all right? And so I'm not as good of a storyteller as my man, okay? Uh, but I really want us to try to uh, interact with the story of Scripture as best as possible and let it begin to capture our imagination that Jesus became a man. Like, that's the eighth time I've said that in this sermon on purpose, and have you even begun to think about the reality of that? That Jesus became a man. Like, is that something that actually begins to at least stir up the imagination a little bit? The God who was spirit, the God who does not have flesh, he is spirit, yet he uh, incarnated, he put on flesh and became like us, that he might interact with you, that you might one day be where he dwells, that he might redeem you. Like, this is what we are talking about this morning. And in order to know the significance of this, we actually have to know why he came in the first place. What you see in Genesis chapter 3 is that God was in perfect harmony with man, and man in perfect harmony with God. Yet, because Adam and Eve did not trust God to be good as he said he was, they rebelled against this God, and they proclaimed with their actions that they were their own gods. They proclaimed that they knew better, that they knew what was right, that they were better gods than the God of the universe, and humanity has been doing this towards God ever since. We've been proclaiming that we know what's best, that we know what's right, that we know what is better. Though we are only humans, we proclaim that we are God. And so God proclaimed that he'd become a human, that he might save us from ourselves. And that's where we pick up. In Genesis chapter 3, after the fall of man, after the rebel nature that we see there, we read this. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And all throughout the story of Scripture, this is what we're actually anticipating. It's the seed that is to come, the child that's going to come to bring us back into unity with God. And it actually began not with David or Isaiah, it actually began with Abel. What we see in Abel is this story that's kind of beginning to make us anticipate what the seed to come would look like. And when you read the story of Abel, which was Adam and Eve's firstborn son, what you're reading is, is this a man that can bring us back into relationship with God? Is this the seed that was to come? In fact, we see that Abel walked with God, much like Adam did before the fall. We see that there was relationship here. In fact, in Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 4, it reads this. It says, Now Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock, And of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. And so Abel actually offered an animal sacrifice to God, showing that in order to overcome death, death had to actually incur, that somebody had to bear the weight or the punishment of man's rebellion. And so Abel had this intimacy with God, and what the author is intending you to read is this anticipation of, well, wait a minute, is this the one that can save us from our sin? But instead, Abel was killed by Cain, and his blood was spilled and it was condemning the world even more in all of the brokenness showing that someone had to overcome evil but it was not able 
He was not the one that could do that. Abel made a sacrifice to God, but was ultimately judged by man. The Messiah would be the sacrifice for us and ultimately be judged by God. So Abel was not the fulfillment. Abel's death actually showed that the righteous can die at the hands of the wicked. That even though Abel was a righteous man, we don't see any of his sin uh, blatantly in Scripture, yet and still the wicked can kill him. The world is broken and it's corrupt and it's messed up and we are sinners and we also feel the weight of the sin around us. That even when we are not actively participating in it, sin still destroys our very being there needs to be somebody that will overcome this Abel was an innocent sufferer in a way he did no wrong and yet suffered nonetheless but he was not the innocent sufferer that would deliver he was not the one that would come and so maybe it is Noah we get you see, Noah actually also walked with God, much like Adam before the fall. And what you see in Noah is this man who was righteous in his deeds. In fact, in Genesis chapter 6 through 8, if you follow the narrative, God recreates the world through Noah in a way. The world was chaos and the waters were all over the place. And then all of a sudden the light shined from heaven and all of a sudden the land appeared. And it's a recreation of Genesis 1 and 2. And so Noah, in a lot of ways, was looking like the seed that would come that would bring us back into relationship with God. And in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, you actually see God give some of the same commands to Noah. It says this in verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That's a Genesis 2 creed there. That's what he told Adam to do before the fall. In fact, in uh, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, it says, For God made man in his own image. Speaking of Noah and others, in the same way that he spoke of Adam. And so there are the same commands. Like maybe this is the one who will deliver us. Maybe this is the seed that will come that will crush the head of the serpent. Is what we should be reading as the readers. But then in Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 21, it says this. And he, Noah, drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered or naked in his tent. Do you see the similarities there between he and Adam, if you know the story? See, Adam ate of the fruit and was naked and ashamed and tried to hide from God, and God cursed the son in his sin. And so Noah ate or drank of the fruit of the vine, became naked and ashamed, and he cursed his son in his sin. Noah looked a lot more like Adam than like the Messiah that was going to come. Noah was not the promised seed. He was not the one that could deliver. He was not the one that would bring us back into intimacy with God. And so maybe it's with Abraham then, is what we say. Like Abraham also walked with God. In fact, he talked directly to God. In fact, he prayed to God on behalf of people that they might be delivered from their sin. And we, so we see Abraham kind of shadowing in a lot of ways, yet Abraham vacillates between looking like God and looking like Adam pretty strongly throughout the chapters. In fact, if you read the chapters, in one chapter he looks like the Messiah to come, and in one chapter he looks like Adam again from Genesis 3. And it goes back and forth. And so maybe it's not Abraham, but maybe it's Abraham's son, Isaac. You see, Isaac was uh, promised by God a special seed that was to come, actually birthed into impossibility, for Abraham was 100 when he had Isaac. And so there was no way that this uh, uh, child could actually be born, and yet through God's miraculous work, he was. 
And so maybe it's Isaac that was going to be the deliverer. I mean, he was even offered as a sacrifice up on a hill. And so we see this idea that, man, maybe it's Isaac that can deliver us back into intimacy with God. But Isaac ends up pawning his wife just like his father. He becomes a passive father himself. He's kind of absent from the story and then just quietly exits out the narrative like he didn't even really exist. This couldn't be the Messiah to come. And so maybe it's Jacob, or maybe it's Judah, or what about Moses, the great deliverer, or one of the judges, or maybe it was one of the kings like David or Hezekiah, or maybe it was one of the prophets who would rule and bring God's peace to God's people. You see, what was going on here is that each of the men and women all throughout Scripture, they foreshadowed, they imaged the Savior that was to come in some really beautiful way. Like a lot of them brought true liberation. A lot of them brought peace to God's people. A lot of them were bringing forth the promises of God, but all of them we see were filled with sin and had great flaws. None of them really were the seed that was to come. You see, many of the men, they showcased God's beautiful works. Many of the women, they highlighted God's beautiful character. Many of the characters in Scripture were trying to show us what the Messiah would be like, but all the time they could not be the Messiah themselves. All of them had the same sins of Adam. And as time passed, what was happening was anticipation was beginning to grow. That, man, how is this Genesis 3.15 promise going to be fulfilled? Like, is Genesis 1 and 2 even true? Can we actually even have relationship with God? Can there actually be a form of intimacy between God and man? And every single time a man or a woman would come that kind of looks like the Messiah, they would ruin it in one way or another. And so anticipation kept growing, but at the same time, the question kept getting larger, how can man be reconciled with God? You see, because man had to be the one that paid for man's sin. And yet as man's sin continued to accumulate and grow, it looked like this was a task that only God could do. And yet man had to be the one that did it. And so how in the world can Genesis 3.15 be true? How can it be a a true promise, a, a true prophecy that one day there would be intimacy between God and man again? How could we be redeemed? How can our souls feel whole? How can the soul finally feel its worth again? What does that look like? Who's going to do that for us? But God, once again, didn't leave us without hope. Because in the same way that he prophesied, Genesis 3.15, he also prophesied over and over and over again what this seed to come would look like, what this offspring would do, the ways in which he would uh, model and showcase the very person and work of God. It was continually trying to point us towards hope that one would come to bring us life everlasting. In fact, all throughout the scriptures, what you see is this re-promise of God that a seed will come. And every time God gives that promise, he gives a little bit more about what that seed would look like, what the child that would be born would actually do. For example, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, he's speaking to Abraham, and it says, And he, God, brought Abraham outside and said, Look toward the heaven, And number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. There's that word again. 
In Genesis chapter 28, verse 14, it says, Your offspring, there's the word again, shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. In 2 Samuel, fast forward, chapter 7, beginning in verse 12, God is now talking to David. And it says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, there's a word again, after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. So he may think, oh, cool, that's just talking about Solomon or something. Except it says, He will build a house in my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Who is this offspring? You see, Israel and Judah, they were taken captive and they had no one reigning on the throne. In fact, after the last one, there's been no king since. And so there's got to be somebody else that's actually ruling and reigning. But not only was there a continual seed to come promise that somebody would come and deliver, but they began to predict what this Savior, what this Messiah, what this deliverer would look like. You see, in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, we read that a little bit this morning. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and, uh, shall, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. In Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Out of Egypt I called my son. And so we see the Messiah had to be called up out of Egypt, which doesn't really make sense according to the rest of the prophecies, and yet God is trying to lay out the roadmap of what it would look like when the Savior would finally deliver us. But every time a promise was given, it made the promise to be fulfilled that much harder to actually be fulfilled. And so God continually built this anticipation and yet at the same time built this impossibility that anybody would actually be able to fulfill this. In Micah chapter 5 verse 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth uh, is from of old. From ancient days, like, like he existed a long time ago, is what Micah's saying there. We see actually in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, that somehow this Messiah would be called God. It says, For unto us a child is born, to a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That somehow the Savior that was man would actually be called God. That there's something divine and yet mystical that's happening that doesn't really make sense. You see, we live 2,000 years post the birth of Christ. And so we begin to lose the wonder of what a verse like this actually means. That if I were to tell you right now that my wife is pregnant with our fourth daughter and that her name will be called God, you would never listen to me again. And yet somehow Isaiah can say something like this and can actually say that he will be called God. And yet a son will be born. And then we go on that gifts would actually be given to this child. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, a thick darkness the peoples, but... 
The Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord." The prophecies of what the Savior would look like began to pile up and become this insurmountable height. Like, who could actually fulfill this? We don't have time to talk about Isaiah 25 or Jeremiah 31. We don't have time to talk about Daniel 9 or Psalm 110 or Psalm 72 or 22. We don't have time to talk about Ezekiel 30 through 39, really, or all of these prophecies about the Messiah that was to come. It was over and over and over again saying, the promise I gave to you in Genesis chapter 3, I will fulfill. I will be faithful to my promises, God is telling his people, and he's building this anticipation, and with it, a sense of, man, how could this be? Like, only God is able to do this, but not only were the prophecies building, not only were these, these, uh, the the seed-to-come promises that kept being given, but we began to realize that Jesus was actually the greater character of every story that we see. You see, uh, as an example, Jesus was really a greater Moses, or another way to say it is Moses was a representation of Christ. I mean, think about the story of Moses. Moses was born into chaos, under slavery to a foreign government, and he was wrapped up in swaddling baskets and put on the river. He was born under a king that gave the command to kill all the newborn boys, and Moses was then delivered, but had to eventually flee out of Egypt into the wilderness, only to be called by God from the wilderness back into Egypt to deliver God's people to the promised land. And if you know the story of scripture at all, you realize the parallel here. Because you see, Jesus was also born at a time of chaos. In the census that was corrupt, or that all the chaos that was going on with the Roman government, he was born under uh, other rulers and other kings in slavery to a foreign government. And Herod, the king, actually made a command that all the newborn boys would be killed. And we see Jesus wrapped up in swaddling clothing in the same way that Moses was wrapped up in that sense. And he too, like Moses, was delivered really supernaturally, and that he would end up fleeing into Egypt, living in Egypt for many years, and then be called by God out of that wilderness back into Jerusalem to deliver God's people into the promised land. You see, Moses was nothing more than a representation or a person of Christ, and there's many more parallels in this in Moses and Jesus' life, like more than we have time for, really. Like the fact that Moses died outside the promised land on a hill looking into the promised land as God delivered his people. And the same way Jesus died on a hill outside the promised land looking in or up as God delivered his people. You see, the difference is, though, is that uh, Moses was actually with God or God with Moses as Moses died. But Jesus died as God was against him laying the sins of you and I on his son. You see, God was Moses' comforter, but God was actually Jesus' judge for you and I. Because Moses should have died outside the promised land with no chance to enter in, but instead he was able to enter in because Jesus one day would be the greater prophet deliverer. You see, Moses was a prophet who delivered God's people, but Jesus is the far greater prophet deliverer who could actually deliver God's people, not just from momentary suffering, but from eternal suffering. 
we see the reality of Jesus here, or Jesus is the greater Isaac, as we already named. You see, Isaac was the promised seed who would go up on a hill to be offered as a sacrifice. He was the one that was born in impossibility from a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman, except on top of that hill, Isaac was delivered. You see, as they were traveling up, Abraham said that God will bring a deliverer. In fact, he says that God will provide a lamb and God provided a ram. So he almost provided a lamb, but not really, because the lamb of God was still to come in Jesus, the greater son that was to be born, the one that would also carry his own wood on top of a hill and be crucified, offered as a sacrifice so that you and I might be restored in right relationship with God. Just as Isaac was the promised son, so Jesus is the greater promised son that could actually deliver us back into relationship with God. Jesus is the greater David and the greater Daniel. He's the greater Job and the greater Abel. He's the greater Isaiah or Hezekiah or or Noah or whatever character you wanna read. You see, every person that you see in scripture, it's highlighting for you some of what God would look like, but they cannot be God because they're not God. And so as we begin to see this anticipation growing, we realize each of these persons are doing nothing more than building up within us an anticipation that someday someone would come to deliver us from our sin. That Genesis 3.15 is real, y'all. This ain't, this ain't a fable. This isn't a joke that God would actually come and deliver us. And over and over and over and over again, God is showing he can be trusted, he's faithful to his promise. But it's not only the persons, nor is it the prophecies. Actually, every single theme of scripture points us to the person of Jesus. For example, let's take the very first theme we see, the theme of light. Genesis chapter one, if you know the creation story, you know this very well. In Genesis chapter one, verse three, it says this. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Easy verse, right? In verse 16, it says this. And God made uh, the two great lights, which is the sun and the moon, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. So at creation, God created the stars. And many years later, God would use those same stars to point to the creation or the birth of his son. You see, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, it says, Where is he who has been born, the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. At creation, Jesus actually brought light to the whole world, for all things were made through him and by him, the scriptures say. And yet in John chapter 1, verse 9, we see the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. In fact, if you carry out the theme of light throughout all of Scripture, you will see that every time light is mentioned, it's just trying to point us to the anticipation of the birth and the rule and the reign of the Son. Because in the same way that light guided us to the birth of the Son, so one day Revelation says that when we will be in eternity, there will be no more Son because Jesus will be our light. All throughout scripture, we see the theme of light trying to point us and build up this anticipation that somebody's going to come and deliver us, that somebody is going to bring us back into intimacy with God. Track the theme and you'll see the reality that Jesus is to come. You see that the theme of life or the theme of the temple or the theme of pregnancy and birth or the theme of the censuses being taken or uh, the lineages that you just skip past because you don't know those names. 
All of them are trying to point us towards Jesus, the promise of deliverance, the foreign oppression, the lands and the covenants. Every single thing is pointing us to this one moment that Jesus would come and reign amongst us, this one moment where Genesis 3.15 would be real, that you would be delivered. I mean, even the way a lot of the books end, you ever realize that in the Bible? Like, we, we just read a book, right, Jonah? We already showed how Jesus was the greater Jonah, the prophet preacher, right? Jonah was a prophet, but really a preacher that preached a message that delivered people from their sin, but he did it in kind of jacked up ways. Jesus was the better Jonah. We see all throughout it, right? And really what you see in Jonah, as he travels to the east to watch the city be destroyed, there's a tree coming up over him and a worm slithers over and eats the tree and Jonah falls in the condemnation. In the same way that Adam, with a snake, slithered over, spoke lies, and he fell into condemnation. And so we see Jonah's a lot more like Adam, but Jesus was the greater Jonah that would deliver. But remember how the book kind of just ended? <laughs> like, like, like that was the end of the book. It, it just stopped. And what is it doing here? It's trying to build up our anticipation that there's something more. In fact, most of the books in the Bible, they kind of stop with uh, not really a fulfillment, with, with something missing, with some absence here. Like this, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 23. This is the last verse, okay, of this book. Y'all, I know we were going to quote Chronicles during a Christmas sermon. Well, come on. <laughs> Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. Ezra. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> That's not a way to end a book, y'all, okay? Like, I mean, come on now. We know there, there's, no, there's no conclusion to that. What's happening here? The book is trying to anticipate that somebody's going to come and deliver us up that we're going to go back to Israel, to Jerusalem, that somebody would bring us back into the kingdom of God, that somebody would come and deliver us. We just don't know who that person is, is what Chronicles is telling us, but we do. In fact, all the stories of scripture, just read the books of the Bible, realize how they end. They're trying to point you to something that is to come. Who's gonna fulfill this? Who's going to walk us into this? Look at the theme of peace and it points you to Jesus. Look at the theme of love and it points you to the birth. Look at the theme of whatever you wanna do and it points you to the birth. Even going back to Genesis chapter three, verse 15, the dragon slayer the one that would come and crush the head of the serpent or the beast or the snake or the dragon. And we see this theme actually carrying us all throughout scripture. For example, 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2, it says that the Philistines took the ark of God, which is where God dwelled at the time, and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up next to Dagon, which sounds like dragon. It's not the same. I ain't going front, though that'd be dope. All right, easy analogy. <laughs> But Dagon was a scaly god. In fact, it was purposeful that it highlighted the scales that covered Dagon's body. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen down, or face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were laying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. So the scaly head god got his head cut off. Or David, when he killed Goliath, 
which by the way, Goliath was wearing snakeskin armor, the text tells us. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 51, it says, Then David ran over and stood over the Philistine and took out his sword and drew it out the sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And then he started carrying his head throughout the city like, God will deliver us, is what he says. See, this, 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 this false uh, man that was kind of highlighting all the wickedness against God's people that was wearing the, the snakeskin scale armor got his head cut off with his own weapon. And so would David be the deliverer? No. But he would come and cut off the head of death with its own weapon, death itself. And Jesus would come and begin to deliver us from our sin. You see, every time we see this mentioned, it's pointing us toward this anticipation. In fact, let's read my favorite Christmas narrative in Revelation chapter 12. I'm actually being serious. This is my favorite one. In Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, it says this. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman, this is Mary, clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on the heads of seven diadems. We could do a whole sermon on this. Don't worry about all the illustration. We'll talk about it one day, okay? But his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth to her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but the child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared for God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Y'all ain't got no dragon in your nativity scene, do you? Next to little white baby Jesus, you got another peaceful lamb, right? Where the dragon at, okay? You see, this was the reality. That this snake would come and try to consume the Savior Jesus. And this great dragon, Revelation is looking back and realizing, was there trying to consume the son. And yet the son, the dragon slayer was born. He would not be consumed by him. You see, God protected him at his birth. And they fled into Egypt, 1,260 days, came back. All of a sudden, Jesus is crushing the head of the snake at his death, but not by some source of might, but by laying down his life and crushing the snake with his own tool of death. You see, Jesus would come and fulfill the Genesis 3.15 promise. And every time you see this idea of a snake or a worm or a dragon, all it's doing is pointing us toward the one that was to come. All of Scripture is trying to draw our eyes to the birth of Jesus. All of Scripture is trying to build up this anticipation, y'all, that God is going to come. The impossible is going to be made possible. That God would become a human, that you and I might be delivered from our sin that we might be brought back to God, amen. That God is faithful, y'all. He is good. He will fulfill his promise. You see, we give gifts at Christmas to those we love because we're mimicking God, who gave gifts at Christmas to those whom he loved, you and I, the gift of his son and his spirit and of eternal life. God gave us these gifts. The ancient world, they anticipated this day. They awaited and God delivered. As Mary delivered God, so God delivered on his promise and one day delivered her. Come on now. God is good. He's faithful to his promise. Do you believe this? Is this what you're anticipating this Christmas? 
As you wake up on Wednesday morning and you begin to drink your little latte and open up the gifts, and is there something in your head that's realizing, holy cow, what am I celebrating right now? That Jesus became a man. He delivered. He is faithful to his promise. And if God would be faithful to this promised family of God, why would he not be faithful to you and I today? Like when he says he's going to return and deliver us again, you better believe that he will. Because God has never backed down from a promise. And even as the anticipation builds in our hearts and we realize it looks like it's more and more impossible for God to actually deliver, y'all, that's kind of when God likes coming through. Just kind of about it like that, you know? Like God will come through at the last moment when it looks like there's no way of deliverance because God wants to make sure you know that he is God. He wants to make sure you are able to worship him. And so this Christmas, what my hope is, is that we would actually worship God, that our hearts would build with anticipation, that we would realize the reality of what we're sitting under, that God became a man. He became flesh so that you and I might one day rid this flesh and be back in relationship with God. You will walk with God one day, family, if you believe in him. And you will have all things that were lost, restored. There will be no more tears. The dragon will be slayed. And you will live in the light of Christ forever. You know, I know my favorite idea is when you're in a cold room, like we often are in Texas in the summer, and you uh, walk out and you feel the light and it just feels good. You know, Adam and I were meeting on Thursday. We sat outside and it was like, man, this, this sun feels good, y'all. Because I'm a light-skinned brother. I need the sun so y'all know where I'm from, all right? <laughs> And I'm feeling the sun, and I'm feeling it on my skin, and every time I feel that, I think, man, think about the light of the world, that one day there will be no more sun, and do you know whose presence you'll be basking in? See, if the sun feels that good to soak up into your skin, imagine what it feels like soaking up the glory of God. He's going to come again one day. Let that be the hope of your hearts. I love you guys. Let's pray. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Thank you, thank you, thank you. May that name never grow common or old. God, as you delivered us one day long ago, so you will deliver us one day in the future. We pray that day would be soon, Jesus. God, but until that day comes, would we wait with eager anticipation? Would we be a people that anticipate your coming? May we long for your presence. God, I pray for the men and the women in this room who just feel tired and weary of waiting. Would over the next couple of days as Christmas dawns upon us, would we feel your presence? Would we realize that you are not distant, that you are close, God? Would we realize the goodness of who you are? I pray peace over these men and women, for you are our Prince of Peace. I pray hope over these men and women. I pray joy. I pray love over their hearts. Jesus, all the things that you did for us at your birth, I pray that we would begin to even just get a glimpse and experience that today. And God, for those who may walk into this place today, this cafeteria, and think, man, what am I doing here? That maybe they don't know who you are. Family, I want to tell you that right now you can have a relationship with God. This isn't a fable. 
all of what we just read is just, it's 0.2% of all the depth of scripture and the reality of God coming through, being faithful to his promise, and he wants to bring you back in relationship with him. You see, our souls feel whole when we are restored back in intimacy with God. And today, your soul can begin that healing process. If you simply give your life to Jesus, man, one day he will deliver it eternally and your soul will be filled forever. It'll feel the worthiness again that God created when he created you. God, thank you for that reality. And for those of us who have professed faith in you, Jesus, we thank you that you are good and that we get to sing of your goodness even today. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. Thank you, Father, for sending your son. Thank you. We put our hope in a newborn infant. And you delivered. And when it seems impossible to us, God, would we put our hope in you again? And would you deliver us again? We pray this in your beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.